You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. On this special special, I get off and I like to eat. Trying to take two. On this special Chancellor Pink Podcast, we're going to address the Oscars coming up tomorrow night. California and they're going maskless and crammed into the theater. I forget the it's not the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion anymore. It's the Hollywood Hollywood something. It's something else. But anyway, they're all jammed in the theater this time again. COVID doesn't exist, just like the NCAA tournament all the basketball games. Except I saw an Asian family there last night at the NCAA games and the woman and her children were in mass. You know, and when's the last time we saw that? Over two years ago, we saw some Asians in mass and do they know something we don't know? And as it turned out, they sure did. They knew that it was bad. They knew to wear masks. All the Asians wearing masks. The Asians listen to the Asians. Put your mask back on. No, anyway, I'm not. I'm not wearing mine uh, right now. Our cases in where the county I live finally, finally went down so low that I feel safe. Yet I'm hearing local people still getting it, and the deaths haven't come down all that much. So who knows? Whatever. I'm rolling the dice. And saying, fuck it, I'm boosted, I'm vaccinated, I'm waiting for more. If they need to put more junk in my body, whatever. Jumping back to the Oscars. Hi, I'm going to talk about them. Now, what I wanted to do is read you my list. of There are 10 pictures nominated for Best Picture, and I have ranked them in the order that I preferred. 10th to number one. Now, I want you to know that there are a couple movies that are not on this list that I enjoyed more and most of the movies on this list, they were not nominated for Best Picture, however, and therefore, they are not on this list. But I'm going to mention them later. Now, here's my reading of the list, and you may have an idea what I thought of these movies overall by the way I read their names. You understand what I mean when we get going here, All right? Number 10 on my list, the 10th or the least favorite of mine out of all the movies nominated for Best Picture, Power of the Boar. Now... It's actually dog, but that's number 10. Number nine on my list, West Side Boring. Okay, now you might know that by its alternative name, West Side Story. Uh, Eight on my list, Nightmare Alley. My seventh favorite movie, Boar. Now you might, it's also was released in the theaters. I think they called it Dune. But when I saw, saw it, it was just called Boar. All right, sixth on my list, sixth favorite out of the 10, um, Drive My Boar. And um, fifth on my list, fifth favorite out of the Best Picture nominees, King Retardo. <laughs> and I'll explain that in a bit. Also released as King Richard. Drive My Car was the other one too, by the way. That In, in uh, Japan or wherever they made it, they released it as Drive My Car. But in America, they, they put subtitles on it and called it Drive My Boar. Deservedly so. Okay. Fourth favorite picture, Belfast, the Kenneth Branagh film. Third favorite nominated for Best Picture, Don't Look Up, by Andrew McCarnahan and Mohammed McFarland or whatever, the guy who did Anchorman and all that shit. And the big, the big hurt or the big sweet or the big chill or what was it called? You know, the movie. Yeah, you know the one, that other one. And he also did... Dick or Cheney or Dick Cheney or whatever it was called doing the story of Dick. Okay, number two on my list. You got it. 
Coborda. Now, <laughs> I liked it because it's number two. But I'll explain why there's still some boar in Coda a uh, little bit later. And number one on my list, Liquor Boar Pizza. No, it's Licorice Pizza. It's my favorite of the movies currently nominated for Best Picture. Now, two movies that I actually would put up there, and I think I would rank them above. I'd, they'd be right up there with Licorice Pizza, ahead of Coda, before Coda. That my favorite movies of the year uh, would be um, The Lost Daughter with uh, Coleman, Olivia Coleman, and um, and uh, you know the little slut girl from uh, Fifty Shades of Vagina, um, the daughter of. I'm just in a position. My head is tilted a certain way, and I started this. I started this podcast and I refuse to re-record it. I'm just letting it roll. But my head is tilted and I'm sitting here and I'm slouching over and I'm kind of laying down and it's all weird. And I can tell my brain's just not fun- functioning. Do you ever get that way? Like a certain way you tilt your head, the blood's not flowing correctly in your skull, something's off. So I'm just like totally don't know what I'm saying or doing, but I'm running with it. I'm going with it. So Dakota Johnson is who I was thinking of. And... um the director of The Big Short was the other movie. See, it's coming to me, even with my head tilted weird. But his name still doesn't. The director of The Big Short and Dick and Don't Look Up is Andrew Heinzman. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Andy. Is it Andy? Andy Gagufman. So the thing of it is, the other movie I like, he's the lost daughter, of course, was Maggie Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal, who, who uh, directed and wrote the screenplay for that movie from a novel or a book, even. Um, <laughs> it's a story of a woman, an older woman, middle-aged, whatever, going off to a vacation, but she's going through some weird things. We don't know what's going on. She seems to have lost her daughter, her mind, something. And we find out a story, the story of her, and it's told in flashbacks. With her when she was younger, she had two young daughters, and then something happens. Not, it's no big threat. Look, I'll just spoil it. She abandons them. She decides, she falls in love, has an affair with Maggie Gyllenhaal's actual husband, Peter Skarsgård. Skarsgård! He's in the movie, very good in it. And the younger, the younger Olivia Coleman character, who was also nominated for a Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar, as is Olivia Coleman. They're both nominated from the movie. Gyllenhaal got a screenplay nomination, not a directing nomination, and the picture didn't get Best Picture, which I think it should have. But anyhow, you see Dakota Johnson in a bathing suit multiple times in it, and honestly, I'm not kidding. You should see the movie for that alone. But also, <laughs> it's very good, and Ed Harris is in it, and Ed Harris is excellent in it. He's classic Ed Harris, and he didn't get a nomination, and I would have nominated him for, for his little role. Because I, I really like the movie, though. Anyhow... <laughs> The other movie that got really screwed, as in no nominations at all, and I really enjoyed it, and you can see it on Hulu. By the way, The Lost Daughter, you can see on Netflix. On Hulu, there's a little movie, tiny, tiny little name, three letters. Ready? It's called Boar. No, it's called Pig. P-I-G, Pig. Nicholas Cage as a raggedy, long-bearded man living in the forest. And he has a little foraging pig. What do foraging pigs do? They go and find truffles, special mushrooms. 
They're, they're good at finding them. And then what happens? Well, then you take them to fancy restaurants. You make a lot of money. You sell them because they cook them as a specialty item and they sell it as an hors d'oeuvre at fancy schmancy. So, so, so the wolf, what's his name? See, I'm back with the head tilt. Wolf, the Alex, Alex Wolf is a kid in that. He was the kid from Hereditary. And he's been in a couple other things too. I think he was in M. Night Shyamalan, but ding dong, Shyamalan, Shyamalan, old, you know. M. Night Shyamalan's old. Did you see that? It's now on pay per view. I think he's in that. He's in a number of things, Alex Wolf. He's a very good actor. He's a very good young actor, up and coming. And he plays the young guy marketing, brokering the truffles from Nicolas Cage, who went crazy off the rails. But we find out a secret about Nick Griffith. So he's going out and he's buying his truffles. Then someone kidnaps his pig. And Nicolas Cage has to join forces with Alex Wolf and go back into society in the fancy-tancy, hoity-toity restaurant area of, I believe, somewhere in California and uh, try to find out who took his pig, why, where's his pig. So does that sound like a plot you want to see? Probably not. But guess what? I Trust me. It's good. It's interesting. It's creative. It's well done. And there's a twist about Nicolas Cage. Who is he? Where did he come from? That I won't spoil. Yes, I will. He was a famous chef. He was a famous top-of-the-line, hoity-toity, prissy chef. And he was married, and his wife dies. She gets trampled to death by pigs. No, that's not true. But his wife does die, and he just sort of falls apart and drops out of society and becomes, lives in the woods. But the thing is, he's in love with that pig because that pig reminded him of his wife, and it was way more than the truffles and all that shit. It was about it. He had a personal connection to that pig. And so and it tells his story, but it's a very good performance by Nicolas Cage, a very unique screenplay, uh, well-acted. I wouldn't say, you know, you don't get done with it and go, wow, breathtaking, one of the best films I've ever seen. No, it's a small story, but it's a neat story, and it's cool, and it's told well, and it's acted well. And Nicolas Cage pulls it off wonderfully, and I just think it's sad that, yeah, he's a hack now, and he stars in all kinds of garbage, but he's always interesting. He's always interesting to watch. And the guy just can be, in certain movies and certain roles, a fabulous actor. You catch him on the right role at the right time, and he just makes the movie. And I don't know why he got all the critics liked him. He's the second most nominated actor from Critics Awards from last year. Number one was Benedict Cumberdick for uh, Power of the Boar. But but Boar, a pig, Boar, B-O-R, B-O-A-R, Boar, see, isn't that interesting? Pig... <laughs> Pig didn't, uh, Nicholas Cage is second, second most uh, award nominations or wins in the critic circles all over the country on the year. Yet the Academy Award says, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. We have to nominate blacks and foreigners and lots of women now. So no room for a white man like you, Mr. Cage. So um, that movie got shut out. Nothing. Otherwise, in terms of the best pictures, I'm going to go back over, tell you what I didn't like about him, okay? And what I did like about him, all right? Going back in chronological order from the worst to the best. Power of the Boar. What I don't like about Power of the Dog is it opens up very interesting. Okay, first of all, I don't like Westerns, confession. So it was really hard for me to go, okay, I'm going to watch this Western. But it opens up, and it's a little too realistic, and wranglers on the and bathtubs and just shit. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm in for a Western. This is going to be a fucking Western. Damn. But 
it's edited really neat. They, you don't know what's going on. And, it, you know, Jane Campion does a nice job. She's going to win Best Director, by the way. It's a shoe in And she does a nice job just drawing you in with shots and scenes and a couple words, and then it's cut, and then you move somewhere else, and they fart, and then they cut, and they move somewhere else. Guy's picking his nose. They cut. Not quite with the nose picking. But the point is, there's no, like, real narrative flow, yet it's cool. And you're like, wow, this is interesting. I don't know what's going on. It's a Western. It sucks because it's a Western. But still, hey. So, um, and the music's really good. Johnny Greenway, Greenwood, Green Green Waffles. He's a guy from uh, Radiohead. He played in Radiohead, and now he makes screenplays. Kind of like Trent Reznor does all the music for for, um, David Fincher's movies with his friend Artemis, Artemis Rose or Artemis Finch or Artemis Fincher's son. Anyway, again, the head tilt. Just let me go on, all right? Ignore the fact that half the names are wrong. You know what I mean. So anyway, Johnny Greenwood, Greenway Greenhouse, Greenhouse Gas Effect, is really good at making music, and he makes really good music that helps skip along the otherwise go-home-little-doggy plot of Powerless Dog. Um, in the ending, the movie gets all this acclaim, or used to, because of the little twist at the ending where the faint, maybe faggy boy, weird guy whose dad died, you know, Turns the tables on the mean, bastardly cowboy played by Benedict Cumber pedophile Batch, who's a homosexual pedophile in hiding, and yet he's a brilliant guy who went to college, and it's all weird. The point is it opens up, and you think you're getting some characterizations you can hold on to, and some you think there's going to be a story, and then it just gets all weird. And I think Kristen Dunn's character is a loser, and she's a drunk, and she's whining, but it's not her fault. She's blaming it on Cumberbatch, and the boy blames it on Cumberbatch. Meanwhile, it's her fault. She clearly has pent up lust for Cumberbatch, and she treats her husband like shit, and he seems like a nice guy, boring as fuck, played by Oscar nominee uh, uh, anyway, Kristen Dunst's boyfriend, you know, he's got the big pumpkin head and blonde hair. What's his name? He's nominated for Academy Award supporting actor, along with Cumberdink, who got so actor, best actor, and Kristen Dunst, Dunst cap got uh, supporting actress. And then the other one, Cody, Cody Smith McFee or whatever, the little boy, he's nominated for best supporting actor. Now, at the beginning, of all the awards, Cody Smith McPhee McFarlane was winning everything. Now it looks like Deaf Man from Code is going to win. Tony Katzer or whatever. He's winning all the awards. So it looks like instead of the little skinny boy going up there going, thank you, I was really overrated in this overrated film, but thank you for the award because of the twist ending. And then, you know, now it's like, here's the award speech. See, because that's my hands moving. Because it's Tony Katzer and he's deaf and he's signing. He's <laughs> that's that's the speech you're gonna hear. You know, um, you're gonna actually you're gonna hear some narrator going. I want to thank everyone for this a ward. It you know that they always like do a terrible job translating with deaf hearing impaired people. Like they laugh and they're like, "Ha ha! I am so glad for this award." Victory lap dog. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> the ninth movie, West Side Boring. My problem with West Side Boring is first of all, why did Steven Spielberg have to remake this? You know, it won like 73 Academy Awards. It's old now. Okay. 61, I think it won. And all right, it's time to really modernize. And, and look, I watched them back to back. I watched the new one, then I watched the old one. And the old one, is old 
and dated when it comes to the acting and the performances. Plus, Natalie, uh, Natalie uh, Merchant, no, Nat- Natalie Wood, playing uh, the Hispanic Maria uh, with a f- terrible accent, and then, to add insult to injury, singing the songs with that same accent. I am singing a song with a fake Spanish accent. I don't know. It's just really bad. And, um, <laughs> but otherwise, the musical productions from the 61 version are fantastic. And the, the singers pronounce the words. So that real fast song, I want to live in America. You can hear the lines that are funny and cute back and forth, you know, uh, because they pronounced them really clearly when they recorded it in the studio. But Spielberg in this version, it's mushy and drivel, and you can't make out half the lines from that song and from many of the songs because however they recorded the music and then transposed it into the movie, however they did that, it just didn't work that well for me. And I think that the acting and the story is, of course, better because it's modernized and it was wooden back then. But the musical is way worse than the musical numbers back then, including the choreography. It's just worse. And most important of all, most important, and anyone who disagrees with me on this is just wrong. The best song from West Side Story is Somewhere. They knew that it was the best song when they made that movie because when it appears, it's very short in the movie. It lasts for like a minute and a half. But it comes at a crucial time when, when Tony has killed you know her brother or whatever hispanic's brother in a knife fight and he's on the run and he flees to her and so they're out to kill him and he literally the law is looking for him he really is in trouble yet she loves him and wants to be with him so when they're singing about there's a place for us somewhere a place for us it really fits the plot of the movie and what's happening and it bonds you it suddenly makes what was kind of a superficial little lustful fleeting Love affair, you know. Maria, I just met a girl named Maria. Ah, you know, and it goes from that, you know, tonight, tonight, I'm dancing on a flight, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, there's a place for us, somewhere a place for us. And you, and you feel their passion, you know, and you feel, and their love matters, and it's, it's the whole movie was stolen. It's it's a version of Romeo and Juliet. It was, you know, Shakespeare was credited in the screenplay, the original screenplay and everything, and the musical. So um, the songs again, the songs, the lyrics are all Stephen Sondheim, and and and, and the music by Bern, Elmer Bernstein or whatever. It's great. The songs are great, and Spielberg. They're not as great in Spielberg's movie, but in particular, somewhere is the greatest song. And they knew it in the first movie because not only did they, when they sing it and how they placed it with those two singing it, Romeo and Juliet, you know, we're we're doomed. Our love affair is doomed. Where can we go? Where can we live? Just the two of us to have our love sustain us. Tony dies at the end, spoiler alert, and Maria is grabbing his hand and there's no music. And this is the old version. And she sings to him, there is a place for us somewhere and then she breaks down crying and you know and he dies and it's like there's it's acapella there's no music and she sings that and then the ending of the movie they play somewhere in a slow maudlin version and it's beautiful and then they go through the overture of all the other songs with the credits but somewhere 
is not only the, the, the wonderful love song of meaning comes at a key moment in the movie, but it's reprised at the end with Maria singing it to her dying lover. And then the music of somewhere, a beautiful melody, fills the sadness of the scene. It's huge. It's everything. Well, guess what? Steven Spielberg says, I'm going to remake, remake West Side Story, and I'm going to ruin the best thing about it. Yay! I'm Steven Spielberg. I know what I'm doing. So instead of having Tony and Maria sing it, he says, I'm going to bring back Rita Marino, a 90-year-old actress who won the Oscar in this movie for playing Anita, the little side role character, who stinks in this movie, yet got Oscar nominated. Whoever plays Anita, I don't like her at all, but she got Oscar nominated. I think she ruins the role. Rita Marino was a thousand times better back, you know, 50 years ago, 70, I guess it's 60 years ago now. Um, but so he has Rita Marino's character who plays the owner of a pizzeria sing somewhere. And the whole meaning of the song is changed as she's looking at a picture of her and her dead husband. And it's about the nature of, you know, the culture wars and, you know, Hispanics, where can they live? And then it, he turns it into some sort of politically correct message, woke message, instead of the love song that it is. It's a love song. Can't we just stick with romance and simple shit? None of this Black Lives Matter and blah, blah, blah. That's current day crap. We're all sick of it anyway. You know, why can't we just say we're all one country and in one, we don't have to be woke. We don't have to be unwoke. We just have to believe in romance, right? It's something anyone can believe in. It brings us all together. Trumpers and the rest of us who are sane, all of us can join together on the somewhere when it's sung by two lovers, star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet. Not the Hispanic old lady singing for her culture. Anyway, so not only does he ruin the most important song in the movie, but and by the way, she sings it weekly, okay? She's 90 years old. I'm sorry. God bless her. It's great that she's still alive. It was great that she was able to sing, but it's not powerful. It's not done well because it's sung by a little old lady, okay? Let's be honest. And then at the end of the movie, when Tony's dying, spoiler alert, he hasn't changed the ending. <laughs> when Maria's kneeling, holding his hand, what does she sing? She can't sing somewhere to him because they didn't sing it in the fucking movie. So that moment, a powerful moment from the old movie where she's reprising their song as he's dying literally in her arms, it's out the window. And the greatest song in the musical can't be reprised. <clears throat> so instead she sings, Tonight! Tonight won't be just any night. <laughs> tonight. Nobody liked that song. Nobody ever gave a fuck about the song tonight. I mean, really, did they? Come on. She sings tonight holding it. It's so horrifyingly awful and non-moving. And it's just can't put a patch on the ass of the old version. And then the music that they play when they lift up his body, you know, it's still not somewhere. They play other weird shit. And then they work in a little bit of somewhere. But <clears throat> maybe growing up, Steven Spielberg was dropped on his head by his mother while she was listening to the soundtrack of West Side Story and the song Somewhere is on. And so maybe when he hears the song, he thinks of his head hitting the cement. And so he said, well, if I'm going to already have to suffer through that, might as well have Rita Marino sing it. And then we'll just never play it again. I don't know. But it ruins the movie for me. And I also think, like I said, some of the act, some of the you know leads are overrated. And anyway, it's West Side Boring. Look, it, it, I like the movie. I gave it a six, I think. 
And the reason I, I liked it still, because of the songs. It's the, the melodies are so wonderful and the lyrics are so smart by Stephen Sondheim that every time a new song starts, you're like, oh, wow, another classic. Oh, yeah, I, I forgot this is in here, too. And, and, and you, can't, you can't deny the brilliance of the musical and the music of West Side Story. And uh, even though he fucks it up, Spielberg, in my opinion, um, the material is good enough that it's still enjoyable. But overall... It's real long, too, and it's West Side boring. All right, number eight. I'll try to move faster on the rest of these. I had to go into detail on that one because that one really bothers me. Nightmare Alley. It was enjoyable. It was okay. I thought the performances were fine. I, I thought Richard Jenkins stole the show as the mean bastard crazy guy. Um, it was darkly photographed, artsy. You know how that, that director likes to do things. This fish movie that, that won Best Picture, you know, fucking the fish movie. Uh, I didn't like that movie at all. Um, I would say Nightmare Alley. What? What's his name? Giuguano del Toro, Taco Man. I don't know. Whatever. I think that it's uh, decent. It's fine. It goes on a little long. The carnival sequences are good. Um, There's a good mood and a good atmosphere. But overall, it's a completely inconsequential movie that really does nothing happens of note. But it's... You can't help but admire it a little bit for the technical quality of the film. All right, number seven, I have Boar, Dune. Now, the reason I say Boar, it's it's well-made, it's captivating. The music's good by Hans Zimmer because, because the director's uh, normal music guy, Johan Johansson, is dead now. He died young. So he's decided, oh, who can I get to make my music? So he's picked everybody's guy, Hans Zimmer. And, you know, he does a nice job. Good acting, good performances. Timothy Chalamet. Yes, he's a twig. He weighs about 110 wet. And all the wimpins, oh, he's so cute. He's cute. He's a fucking skeleton with a wig. It's like, put a skeleton on a wig. But I'll, I'll give him this. That skeleton can act. The skeleton acts good. And if he would just put on some fucking weight, you know, I'd like him even more. But still, um, the acting all around is good. Um, and, yeah, and it's well made, well edited. And it makes you think, this is important. We're editing it, editing it together. Something's happening here. This is important. Plus, we're making the movie two and a half hours long. So you better have an attention span for us. This matters. This matters. It's deep. So there's like this sense of Star Wars where the force and power, some other. And then it's also mixed with Lord of the Rings with sort of like conquest and meeting together with strange tribes and blah, 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 blah. So it has all that. But then at the end, it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it basically ends with a dramatic knife fight of characters that are peripheral to the whole thing that we never even met before. And we're learning that our lead character, the skeleton with the wig, Timothy Chalamet, is is some maybe the messiah on this planet. And, you know, and he's trying to fight for the spice wars of the, you know, and if you've seen it, the worms, the worms are coming, the worms. If you've seen the old movie, you know, which, which was by David Lynch, the one from the 80s that was really weird. This isn't weird. This kind of comes off like it could happen, like you're there. It's, the production uh, qualities are amazing. You know, the, the, the costumes and the lighting and everything, it's very real, special effects. I mean, it really draws you in, and you really do feel like, sort of like Game of Thrones, you know? It draws you in. However, there's just nothing happening. Nothing's really happening. Now, having said that, everyone dies. Basically, everyone in the plot 
from the beginning, they're not around by the end. <laughs> Many of them are gone anyway. Several of them die. But it's still uneventful, and it's not... I just you could have done a lot more with it two and a half hours. And with all that going for it, all those qualities and technical, you know, uh, acing of, of the presentation and the performances really well nuanced and good acting. It's just they just didn't do enough. And I think you just got to blame that on the damn overrated material that should have never been made into a movie ever once, let alone seven times or whatever. This is like the fourth adaptation. They did a TV series and then the the David Lynch version and then this by by Iguana Omalazzi. I forget this director's name. I like him too, this director Mexican, but again, I'm not getting up. I'm not moving my head. All right, then we move on to six. Okay, I'll try to make it quick. I know I'm going too slow. Drive my boar. Now, the reason I moved Drive My Car Up so high it's probably, no, not probably. It is absolutely the most boring movie out of the group. It was really hard to get through it. It's like two hours and 40 minutes it's, or something. It's really long. It's subtitles that you have to read like a maniac because it's all talking. There's shitloads of talking. And it's like the people <clears throat> speaking Japanese, I don't know if they're good actors or not, but I know that their voice tone for most of the characters in this movie is atrociously dull. So you have this one woman at the beginning of the movie talking. And her tone never changes. And you just start to nod off. And you're reading all the words, but you're nodding off. And then even the lead character, the guy, he's just so wooden. You know, it's just, it's just hard to deal with. And <laughs> I think at the end, I would have liked the movie more if the actors had been better. I really can't tell because they're not speaking English. And it's really very hard, I think, to judge whether or not someone's performing well when you can't watch their face because you have to read the fucking words underneath their face. I don't like that. That's why I don't like foreign films, by the way. I know that it sounds like taboo to say that. It must mean I'm a terrible movie critic or have no taste if I can't just jump at foreign films. But I'm sorry. The, the big, huge part of watching a movie to me is dialogue, okay? I, I'm not a plot guy. I'm not a, I like cinematography. I do like pretty shots, very much so. So I can enjoy a Fellini film because he had great use of color and the panoramic shots and everything. You know, Juliet of the Spirits, Spirits, very good to look at. But at the end of the day, I want to watch actors talk and feel and go through things, and I want human emotion. Uh, and if I can't watch their face while they're speaking because I have to read subtitles underneath their face, it's very distracting to me, and it undermines my enjoyment of the movie tremendously. And so every time I watch a foreign film with subtitles, I'm like, boy, if I liked it a lot, I'm like, boy, I really like that. I wish I could watch that someday. I feel like I haven't watched it because I had to read it. Like, oh, I really enjoyed reading that movie. Someday... It would be nice if I learned Japanese and could just watch the fucking movie. But, of course, that's never going to happen. So I just don't really like foreign film experiences for that reason. It always is limited to me. I can't really love the movie because I can't really watch the movie. You understand? I have to read the movie. So that's not good. But anyway, I think that this movie in particular, 
I give it good marks and I moved it up because it's, it's highly creative and it tries to deal with deep subject matter and it does it in a creative sort of juxtapositioned way. And it definitely pushes sort of the outer edges of the envelope and some of its dealing with human emotion and with relationships. But having said all that, it does it very slowly and it's not that original or earth shattering. And I think that the actors just say their lines in boring tones, most, most of them. And it's just dull. And so even though I appreciated it and I respect it for what it was trying to do, I think it, it missed a lot. And I think it's boring and, 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 and it shouldn't be. And I think that you, you have to struggle to get through it, even though you appreciate it. You're appreciating it, you're liking it, and yet you're struggling your ass off to get to the end of it. And yet I rank it six because the other movies, to me, are just slick, overdone things that are worthless. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Dune is really nice, but it's meaningless. Nightmare Alley, same thing. West Side Boring, again, it, it could have been great, but he ruined the material. And Power of the Dog, I just don't think there's a story there worth watching on Power of the Dog. I just don't. And... So finally, we get to a movie that I think is really trying to do something. And that's why I rank Drive My Boar six. But having said that, all five of those movies, I good, you know, I, I'll watch one again if someone wants to watch one with me, but I don't care if I ever see them again. They're nothing to me, and they shouldn't be on any best picture list, in my opinion. Now we get into the five that I actually did enjoy, the least of which was King Richard. Now, I called King Richard King Retardo. The reason I called it King Retardo is because Will Smith's going to win the Oscar. He's won everything of late. It started out like it was going to be Benedict Cumberbelt, but Cumberbelt uh, has fallen on hard times. In the whole movie, Power of the Boar, has fallen. It's, it's seen better days. It's now in the dog days <laughs> of the powerless dog because it's not going to win. It's lost steam. It's going to win Best Director because they have to give it to a woman. It's written in the laws of Satan that a woman must win every time that one is nominated for best director must win from now on. And so they're going to give it to Jane Campion for that reason. And that reason alone, because otherwise I don't think she deserves it, but it is well-directed, but, but that's it. I don't think it's going to win a single other award. It's lost all of its momentum to Coda and to other people. And in the acting award, has lost all the momentum to Will Smith as King Richard, the father of Venus and Serena Williams. Here's the problem. Is it, a, is it a unique characterization by Will Smith? Yes. Do you forget when you're watching him play the role most of the time that it is Will Smith? Yes. So does he absorb himself into a role and a characterization? Yes. Now, here's the next question. Is it a believable, real, three-dimensional person that he's playing that you really think he catches all elements of? Absolutely not. Is it a likable character? Not really. Do you feel like he's so lost in a characterization that he's playing a caricature of the character? Yes. Is that character kind of retarded? Yes. Does he make eyes and faces while he's saying half his lines that look like he has a diaper on that he just shit in and he has a board up his ass and he's been clobbered over the head with a board as he's speaking? Does he kind of act it that way, Will Smith? Yes. Do you wish that you could just say, dude, wake up? to him several times while he's speaking in the movie. Yes. I mean, his eyes are always drooping. There's something he's doing 
It reminded me kind of of Jack Nicholson in Preetzi's Honor. Remember that atrocious performance that nom- was nominated for Best Actor? What well, he's doing an accent. Ah, Preetzi, I'm Preetzi's Honor. And he was still Jack Nicholson. I'm Jack Nicholson doing a, an Italian uh, kind of sounding Jewish too. Ah, Preetzi, Preetzi, ah. It was horrible. But for some reason, they nominated, they nominated him. Well, now... They're not only nominating an an irritating performance, they're going to give it an award. And yes, it's because he's black. And also they're going to give it to him because he's been nominated several times and they figure he's paid his dues. And also they're going to give it to him because he's a, it's a biographical real life character and they always got to give the award to if you're playing a crippled or someone, you know, who's physically challenged or if you're playing a real life character, that's the only people they give the awards to anymore. Right. So for all of those reasons, Will Smith will win. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, he went too far with his characterization. There's something about his eyes and the way he plays it, for me anyway, that became fake. That became uh, like he's playing a character on Halloween. That he, that he went dressed up as King Richard and went out and he's playing a role. It's not like a real person. So even though you've, you definitely, it's, it's not Will Smith. He's not being Will Smith, okay? He's being something else. That something else doesn't come off to me as really a three, four to five dimensional character. And, and I don't like the guy, really. I didn't like the guy. He's pushy. He wants to have everything his way. I'm not convinced it was because he was right. I'm not convinced that he loved his children. I kind of think he was abusive. I kind of think uh, it's a movie about an egomaniac playing God over his family and kind of being a dimwit, but somehow making out because he was such a, a slave driver to his children and abused them so much that they became very good at tennis, two of them. And I kind of think he gets reported to the police by the neighbor and everything. And I kind of think the neighbor was right. Now they don't present the movie that way. The movie's all fun and laughter and oh, they love him. The daughters love him. It's a wonderful family. But if you're paying attention, especially to his performance, you get the sense, you get the sense that there's more going on here, maybe. And that maybe the real King Richard was kind of an asshole. And also, Will Smith is kind of not that good. Okay. But it's a, look, it's a, it never gets slow. It's also like two hours and 73 minutes, two and a half hours, something like that. So it's a very long ass fucking movie. But it's entertaining. So I put it fifth and I enjoyed it. But it's a solid seven is all it is. It's in the seven range solidly, but it doesn't go about that. No way is that an eight or a nine or ten. And I saw Owen Gleiberman, a critic I used to think was okay, now I despise, because I got into into it with him on Twitter over Licorice Pizza, which is my favorite film of the year, as I said. And he ripped it off and was being a smartass, and he's all about Coda. Now, I like Coda, too, but when I'm trying to talk with him and have a nice conversation, he's just trying to bash Licorice Pizza. I try to throw in some praise for Coda, ignores it. Anything positive, I said, he ignored. He just wanted to disagree with me, and that's the way he is on there. He just disagrees with everyone, and then he blames it on Twitter, like, oh, Twitter sucks. It's a bunch of assholes. It's like, well, why don't you try, like, having congenial conversations rather than always disagreeing with everyone? But anyway... I, he said, the outstanding king, even though he was pushing for Coda to win Best Picture, he was saying, the superlative King Richard. And he acted, and so I, I thought, okay, I got to really watch this now because Owen Gleiberman says King Richard's so fucking great. Meanwhile, King, king Richard on OMD, uh, IMDb, 
the people rating and the critics rating, it's about the same, like 7.4 or something. Like, just good. Not great. Neither the critics or people love it. They just say it's a good movie. I agree. I agree. I think the people got it right. It's a decent, good, made-for-HBO movie that is pleasurable to watch once and then you tuck it away and it kind of reminds you in your mind of the Brady Bunch when you tuck it away. It's like, oh yeah, that black Brady Bunch movie. It's kind of what it's like. Anyway, number four, Belfast. Now, now this is where we get into movies I actually kind of like, okay? We already mentioned Pig and the Lost Daughter. I would put them above Belfast. I would also put them above Don't Look Up and I think I'd put them above Coda. I think I would have Licorice Pizza, Pig, and The Lost Daughter kind of in a dead heat tie for first. Then I'd go Coda, Don't Look Up, and Belfast. Now, Belfast, it's not great. It's very short. I like the fact he kept it short. He told his little story and he got out. That's it. He made it black and white. I, I, I sometimes like it, sometimes don't. It works here. <clears throat> when it opens up, in, it, it opens up in color, I believe, and then it shifts to black and white. It, it opens up in color showing the area of Belfast, and then it goes back in time to 69 and goes into black and white. So it's well done in that regard, too. It makes you accept the black and white. You know, you walk into it understanding what he's getting at by making it black and white. He's not just being pretentious or pompous, you know. Um, And it's a memory, see? So a lot of people like to do those memory movies. It's his memory growing up as like a six-year-old boy in 1969 in Belfast. But it's right at the time when there are the wars beginning in the streets and the battling between the Catholics and Protestants that turned into all the mayhem and IRA and everything else and bombings and things. So people started to have to abandon their home. They lived there. That was their country. That was their city. That was their area. And they ended up going over to the, you know, going to the UK or going to uh, other places, just just migrating because they had to get out of there because it was just too much violence. And um, And that's when this movie takes place. But, but... The real reason it's good, it's not really about that. It's not really that serious. It's a comedy. It's light. It's really about a little boy and the joy in his life and how he was experiencing life amongst all of that drama. And his performance, the little boy, is fantastic. It's amazing little performance, little miracle. And he laughs and he smiles and there's so much life from his face that it's impossible to watch the movie and not enjoy it because your head protagonist, the little boy, is just a joy to watch. Also, the the two key characters in the movie are his grandparents. And those uh, performances are nominated for Supporting Actor Awards, each of them, for Judy Dench and uh, what's his name? Colin Hyam? Or, I think that's his name. Again, I'm not looking this shit up. I'm winging it, okay? Bam. Anyway, they play. he plays a grandfather, grandmother, and they're both interesting characters in different ways. And the little boy talking to them, and it's very reminiscent. It's like a, a good portrayal of a little boy and his grandparents and memories of grandparents and meaning, meaningfulness of, of older people in a young boy's life. And when times shift and you know things get a little serious and sad and that's what the movie's about and it's well done and do i love it do i think it's spectacular no i'll leave that to james woods the evil satanic republican actor who i used to like a great deal who haunts the halls of twitter with his morose and disgusting conservative thoughts he loved belfast he said it's moving profound brilliant story and i don't know where he's talking about with all that. I just think it was a nice, lighthearted tale that has some nice little moving touches. I Probably James Woods was molested by his grandparents as a boy, and he loved them anyway, and there's some drama going on in his head that he's living out through the story of the grandparents or something. Or maybe 
in another life, he, he was in Belfast during that time. I don't know. But it's a good movie, and that's it. Okay, next up, Don't Look Up. I'm going to keep this one short. I thought it was hysterical. I thought it was funny, and I thought it was well-acted, and I thought it was real. <laughs> and I thought everybody in it was playing it over the top, but not really. I think it was believable. And I especially like Jonah Hill, <coughs> who I always like. And I like Meryl Streep's portrayal of a Trump-like president, but also kind of Obama touches there, too. I liked the way they didn't really insulate. I think the reason the movie was unpopular, even with critics, especially with critics, is I think it's, it, it, it walks a thin line between lampooning Trump and lampooning liberals. I think it kind of lampoons us all in some way. And I respected it for that. And um, I think that it's scary. And it was an effective movie because it could very much happen. And um, I liked Mark Rylance's performance as the, you know, the, the, the money-grubbing tech, techie owner. You know, it's supposed to be a mixture of sort of like Microsoft Bill Gates and the late, uh, you know, Apple guy, whatever the fuck his name is. I'm, 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 again, my brain is leaving me. The Apple man, you know, they made all the movies about him uh, with Fassbender and everything playing him. But it's like a conglomeration character of a rich, techie guy who now everyone listens to because that's Rylance's character in, in Don't Look Up, and I liked it a lot. And I just think I, I thought that <laughs> this is interesting. I've never been a Jennifer Lawrence fan. No, I'm a fan. She's a good actress. I never thought she was attractive. I know. I think my sons think Jennifer Lawrence is hot, and I'm, I just always thought she was okay. I think she's really hot in this movie. She dyed her hair like a red and wears it in a bob and has a nose piercing. And she's playing kind of like a liberal kind of, and it's my type of girl, you know, that kind of like lefty liberal girl that's not not really openly sexual, but is so sexy that you just want her to be sexual. And I don't know. I just think she does always popping pills and wanting to, you know, get high. There's something about her character that I just thought was hot. And I liked her in the movie too. And I thought Leonardo DiCaprio did a nice job playing his little over-the-top, uh, anxiety-ridden, uh, liberal scientist guy. So I don't know, underrated movie, Adam McKay. How about that? I finally remembered his name. I'm not brain dead. It's fun. Um, but I still don't remember the Apple guy's name. <laughs> the guy who owned Apple. Come on, man. What the hell? Anyway, he's dead. He died. They made a movie about him. <laughs> Come on. They made several movies. Adam Kutchner or whatever. Kutch, the guy with it was with uh, Demi Moore. He was in one of the movies. Kind of, you know, punked, punked guy. What was the name of the Apple guy? Anyway, two, number two, Coda. Look, Coda. Here's the thing about Coda. Coda is a really good movie because it's done really well. It's not a really good movie because of what it's about. It's an atrocious movie because of what it's about. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the last movie any of us should want to see, because I'm smart and it's the last one I want to see, is any movie about handicapped people ever. Any movie that shows the hardships of, you know, anything that is, I'm so sick of it. I've just seen them all. And I'm tired of the Academy honoring them. And I'm tired of watching My Left Foot or Rain Man. I'm going to count them. I'm going to count the cards. I count the cards. I'm counting cards. I'm Dustin Hoffman as Rain Man. You know, or, 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 or I am Sam with uh, Sean Penn. I am Sam. Oh, Jesus. So, you know what I mean? I just am not interested. 
So deaf people trying to be, look, there are scenes where the parents are talking about how they have sex and they're making sex jokes with their sign language. Bang, bang, fucky, fucky hand signal. Oh, God. So there are very much cringeworthy moments in the movie. And the whole idea of a, 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 a child of deaf, deaf parents, you know, like she has a deaf brother and two deaf parents, but she hears and speaks fine. And she's living in that household. It's kind of like, oh, no, this is going to suck, you know? And the sub, so, so, and then it's a coming-of-age movie. It's like she is a good singer, very good singer, and she wants to sing. But, of course, she's raised in a house where they can't hear her. So she's not encouraged to sing. And so it's a story of a girl growing. Does she choose her path for her? Or does she stay home with the family and help them do their fisherman business because they need her to help them? I mean, can you think of a more hackneyed roll-your-eyes plot? No. Is it, could you think of a movie you'd want to not watch more than a movie about deaf people and their non-deaf daughter who has an opportunity to become a star, but should she sacrifice it all for her handicapped family? No. That's a horrible plot. You know, and then, of course, there's the teacher at school who sees her talent, who wants to help her escape and become something big, but then she'd be abandoning her family. I mean, I could list 50,000 movies that have already been made with plots similar to that. And, you know, it's a mixture of a coming of age, a love, a family movie, and a drama, and, a, and an art movie, making it famous, blah, 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 blah. I'm falling asleep even talking about it. But look, it's very good still. Despite the fact that there's nothing you want to see about it. And oh, by the way, we don't have William Hurt in this movie reading the lines out loud as they say them. Seeing Children of a Lesser God when Marie Matlin, who's in this movie as the deaf mom, when she was talking to William Hurt, she'd be going, you know, signing him. That's my hands, hands doing signs. And William Hurt would go, you're angry and think that I'm upset? Why are you angry? I am not upset. You hate me and you think, you know, he would argue with himself because he would read her lines to the audience, us, and then say his own to her. And in real life, of course, nobody says anything. Even the talking people, like the daughter, wouldn't even speak. She would read the parents and then sign back. And there would be no talking. But at least in this movie, she does talk and sign back. But she doesn't read their lines. So unfortunately, it's back to Drive My Boar subtitles. So you have to read subtitles to watch Coda, because they don't have people doing what William Hurt did in uh, Children of Lesser God and verbalizing the lines that are being hand-signaled <laughs> by the parents and such. We have to read that. But I, you know what? I ended up liking it, and it's okay. And I, again, I don't like subtitles. It bothers me, but uh, it takes me away from watching the people. But it's okay uh, in this movie. It works. And in particular... The reason I think it's a really good movie, despite the hackney plot and the horrible, cringeworthy subject matter in general, is because of the performances, the direction, and the fact that it really does, they do a wonderful job portraying a loving family. In the end, despite their terrible sex jokes and other things that deaf parents do that make you cringe, um, they're good performances by Marley over-the-top acting Matlin and and by going to get an Oscar, Tony Kushner or whatever. Uh, good performances by the girl. Good performances by the brother. The brother's quite good in it, the deaf brother. And a very good performance by the high school music teacher who who helps her out, the Hispanic, gayish kind of music teacher who who decides to step in and uh, and, and get her uh, an audition for Juilliard or whatever the hell it was for. <clears throat> so the good acting, good use of music, really nice use. When movies... Uh, 
pick good songs and use them wisely and do and use good music. That always, I'm a sucker for that. And Coda does that very well. <clears throat> Which brings us to my number one movie, Licorice Pizza. And it's number one, maybe first and foremost, because of its use of music. A lot of great songs cut and spliced throughout the movie, the way a la Martin Scorsese. And also a la Paul Thomas Anderson. He's, he, he's done that in the past. It's To me, it was a return to form. I loved Boogie Nights and Magnolia. I thought both of those movies were excellent. And, and yet, after that, the movies that were loved by PTA, namely uh, they were, There Will Be Blood and The Master, uh, I was not super in love with. I liked, some of the, I liked the performances in those movies, but I, didn't, I got an icky feeling from There Will Be Blood and The Master, both of them. Joaquin Phoenix, I didn't like his performance in The Master, but I loved Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master. So it was challenging uh, to, to, to deal with them both together. And There Will Be Blood, I thought Daniel Day-Lewis's performance was just over the top. And I thought he was awful, an awful person. And just a hard movie to like. So I know a lot of people adore those, both those movies. And I thought they were interesting and definitely worthwhile. But they weren't, to me, uh, the caliber of movies that Magnolia was or Boogie Nights. Well, I think that Grish Pizza kind of returns to those style of movies. It's a period piece. Uh, well shot, great use of music, use of music, a nice unheralded cast about nobody's. Philip Seymour Hoffman's son does a nice little turn. I wouldn't say he's a great actor, but he has a great smile and he his personality carries the day and makes makes the character interesting. And uh, Alana Hyam, one of the Hyam sisters, you know, um, she is pretty good. She's a pretty good actress. You know, she does a decent job. Um, and I just think overall, his directing style works in this movie. His quirky, kind of odd, uh, chopping him when he goes to what, it works. And, and the cameo performance by Bradley Cooper as John Peters is hysterical. It's, 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 it, it jumps out of the movie and makes you laugh like crazy. Um, and it works very well. Not as effective or as successful as the, the cameo performances that come in together of of uh, Sean Penn and Tom Waits. That section of the movie, that little part right there, might be the weirdest part in the movie and the one that makes you scratch your head and go, now, why did he Why did he do this? Why did he put this in this movie? But overall, I would say the reason I like Licorice Pizza is there are a number of scenes and moments in the movie where you say, hmm, why did he do this? Hmm, does this work? And I like that. And I think on the whole, it works. And, and I like creativity. Like I said, I put Drive My Boar all the way up at six because it was creative. This one's number one because it's creative. It's put together well. The music's good and the performances are good. And overall, it's a love story. And I like the fact that it's a taboo love story. I like the fact that it's about a 25-year-old woman and a 15-year-old boy. And I like the fact that by the end of the movie, you're kind of rooting for them, even though a lot of people out there are up in arms about the movie and aren't rooting for them and think it's awful to be making, even making a movie that would show that, which shows you what kind of country we live in now. Now you're not even allowed, you're allowed to make movies about mobsters that murder people. And those same people will love like, you know, seeing another episode of The Sopranos or <clears throat> burning or, you know, bad, uh, ter- something bad. What's that one series? Any of those movies or any of the Star Wars movies where they cut people in half with a lightsaber, that's all fine. But how dare you make a movie that has any sort of sexual 
connotation or, or romantic connotation between age group, groups or it's so bizarre, isn't it? I mean, it's bizarre to live in the, such an open-minded country and yet we're so repressed when it comes to sex. We're totally open with like all kinds of other crazy, awful things. And yet when it comes to sex, it's still like, shut up. No, that's bad. Don't talk about that. You're weird if you like that kind of sex. And, you know, this minor protection thing, protect the minors. Okay. But can we make movies about reality too? This shit goes on. Can't we, can't we show in a real and believable way how a 15-year-old boy and a 25-year-old woman might actually fall in love? Can't we show a movie about that? And I think he does a wonderful job dealing with it. It's actually explained. It's not like a pedophile predator. It's not, nobody's creepy here. You have two people coming from distinct places in their lives that explain why they might be attracted to each other despite the age gap and why they would think in a way they would overcome the taboo of it and find it okay. And he explains it with the, each of their family backgrounds and their, their views of life and their, their, their level of maturity, emotional maturity, you know, and everything about the film. And, and by the way, the woman's the aggressor. And, and the one who's, is, is, who ends up pushing at the end, on, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the 15-year-old, the boy, is the aggressor, and he's the minor, is my point. The minor is the aggressor. So that's, again, an important bit of information that should stop the people that are saying it's a horrible child predator sex movie. And by the way, there's no sex in the movie. Spoiler alert. No sex. No sex. Yet they're, they're complaining about it. How dare... Uh, uh, someone who's 15 fall in love with an older person. How dare an older person fall in love with a younger person? How dare they have feelings for each other? <laughs> it's so bizarre. Anyway, I think it's well done, handled well, entertaining. I liked it. Oh, my God. This went over 57 minutes. Oscars, go Oscars. Who's going to win? I don't know. Do I care? I don't even care because Licorice Pizza is not going to win. And so... Coda's going to win, and I'll be happy. It'll win Best Picture, and I'll be happy for that. Um, I believe, yeah, Campion's going to win Best Director. Eh. Screenplay, I think, might go to... I have no idea. I don't know who's going to win the screenplays, and I don't care. I'll be fine with it either way. Hopefully, Maggie Gyllenhaal wins it for original screenplay for The Lost Daughter, or, or Adaption. I think that's a dab, but it, she won't. Um, yeah. That's all. I love you. Yabba da boop bop.